0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Porterville Baptist Church in beautiful Moultrie, Georgia. We're so glad that you've chosen to listen in with us today. It is our hope that you will be encouraged by the Word of God and find growth in your everyday life. For more information about our church or for more digital resources, be sure to check us out on the web at OrtravilleBaptist.com. And now for today's sermon. thank you so much uh Celia, for that song you did a great job on that and uh brother Jake and ladies thank you all for leading us today in worship and um for singing one of my favorite songs i stand amazed in the presence of jesus the nazarene if you will uh take your bibles and turn with me uh to the book of first peter first 1 peter chapter 4 1 peter chapter 4 as we uh Look at the uh, second sermon in our short series on on serving, and uh, we'll be looking at verses seven through eleven, Lord willing, this morning. But it's First Peter chapter four, verses seven through eleven, and I would ask you if you are willing and able uh, to please stand with your Bibles open in honor and in reverence of God's holy Word. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7 But the end of all things is at hand therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers and above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins be hospitable to one another without grumbling as each one has received a gift Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you today for all that you have done for us. And Lord, again, it is a day in our country when we celebrate uh, freedoms uh, that we have, the birth of our country. And God, we are thankful for how you have blessed our country. God, help us, Lord, to take the freedoms that we have been given here and use them to magnify and glorify your name, not just on on this country, Lord, but all around the world. God, help us today in this sanctuary to make much of you. God, we pray today that you would save souls today. We're praying for you to challenge us as your church to understand the times that we are living in and what needs to be done. Oh, God, would you Place that burden on us. And may we be serious and understand the urgency uh, that we are facing and what we need to be doing. God, uh, we love you. We thank you for what you're going to do. We ask, God, that you preach this message that I would decrease and you increase, Lord, for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And you may be seated. When we think about the letter that Peter writes to these churches or church or churches. He is writing to them in a very difficult time. He is writing to them at the beginning or uh, right before it appears the great Nero persecution. The emperor Nero is going to blame believers or Christians for a fire that took place in Rome. Whether Christians did it or not, we'll never know. But what we do know is that they were blamed for it. They were a small group, a fringe group at that particular time. And that group was easy to pick on and things were about to get rough. Up to that point, your family might persecute you if you came from a Jewish background and and, and converted to to, to follow Jesus Christ. If you came from an idol worshiping family and you converted to Jesus Christ, your family might give you a hard Your buddies might give you a hard time, but the government now is about to come down on them. They're about to be fed to line. Some of them, they're going to lose everything. They've got trouble coming. One of the major things of this letter is the suffering for Jesus Christ. They need to be prepared for it. They need to understand it's happening. And he says here, beginning in verse seven, but the end of all things is at hand. What a powerful statement for Peter to say. In essence, what he's saying is time is running out. The end of all things. What exactly did he mean by that? Some scholars think he was talking about the return of Christ. Now, Peter, I believe, knew that Jesus would not come back in his lifetime. Uh, Jesus had told him in, back in the last, part, last chapter of the book of John that, that someone would lead him to his death. So he understood that Christ would come back probably after his life. But he also understood he didn't have much time left. Matter of fact, it's one of the reasons why he's writing his letters to stir people up, to get them worked up, get them ready to serve. Uh, He says here, the end of all things at hand. He may just simply be saying, listen, we're running out of time to do what we're going to do for the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And again, no matter what he was talking about every day, that time gets shorter for us even today. And what we see here, he says that the end of all things is at hand. That phrase is very familiar to us as we think about how Jesus Christ used it in the very first sermon that he ever preached. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. What he's saying, it is drawn close to you. It is here right in front of you. Peter is telling them, listen, the end is drawing close People have said uh, all my lifetime, I had a conversation, I think about two weeks ago with someone. And they said, when you look around what's going on, preacher, don't you think it's just a sign of the end of time? You know, and I said, yes, sir. And and I didn't want to get into a big theological debate with this fellow. But can I just explain something to you? We've been in the last days since Jesus Christ went back to glory. We have been in the last days since then. So church, uh, understand now, uh, there are there are things, again, I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but there are things that you read about in the book of Revelation that 50, 60, 70 years ago could not have happened. That now we have the technology to do. So understand that, that, that we are drawing very, very close. But whether or not it's the return of Christ or not, your time, my time, is getting short. Um. Whether he comes in our lifetime or not, we need to be prepared. We need to be doing all that we can. I believe Peter's trying to get them to have the end in view. They need to have the end in view. So he will challenge them in these verses to get busy. To get busy, to see, have an urgency about serving the Lord. Notice there's four things he'll tell them. To do, we see in verse seven, the last part. The first thing he tells them to do is to be serious and watchful in prayer. To be serious and watchful in prayer, he says. But the end of all things at hand. Therefore, because we're running out of time be serious and watchful. Now, uh, those two words uh, are very similar. Uh, They carry with it the idea of being sober-minded and not being under the influence of alcohol. Now, when you read and study the book of 1 Peter, what you'll find is that multiple times he will make reference to drinking and revelry throughout this letter. Matter of fact, he'll tell when you get saved, you quit running with that old crowd, and they're going to think something's wrong with you. Why? Because you've been change and again it keeps you from thinking uh, clearly it keeps you from focusing on what you need to do here we need to be serious and watchful in our prayers Prayer is something that is vitally important to the child of God. And we should be reverent and focused and make sure that we are spending time in prayer. Because folks, when we think about the Great Commission, we think about what God is calling us to do. We cannot save anybody. And a person who is lost is spiritually dead. They may look fine on the outside, but they are spiritually dead on the inside. We're asking God to do a miracle. All we do is share the good news, but God is the one who changes them. And we are to disciple them. And even in that discipleship, we are to do it in the power of God. We need Him and we need to be focused in our prayer time. In Peter's day, they needed to be aware of what was already happening or what was coming their way. Uh, time was running. They needed to get serious about it. If they'd been monkeying around with their Christian service, they need to get serious because the times called for it. I think about the church today. And it's not good for the church here in the United States There's a couple of recent polls, and I I don't want to bore you this morning with numbers, but we need to be aware of what's going on in our country and what's going on around us. A recent Gallup poll released back in March, just a few months ago, did a study. And they've been doing this particular study, if I can understand right, since the 1930s. There's been studies and surveys since the 1930s about how many Americans belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Okay? Now, for the vast majority of that time, it's primarily been churches because there hadn't been near that many mosques or or synagogues, although those numbers are growing for mosques. But from the 30s to the 90s, consistently in the United States, anywhere from 70 to 73% of Americans said they belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. 73% has been the average for nearly 70 years. Just fluctuates very little. That doesn't mean they go to one, mind you. It means they are affiliated with one. They're associated with one. Beginning in the year 2000, that number began to drop at a very drastic rate. In the year 2020, 47% of Americans claimed they were a part of a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Forty For the first time in doing these surveys, doing these polling, in nearly 100 years, less than half of the people in the United States claim to be a, a part of one of those three organizations. We are moving further and further away from God. It, it is a frightening thing, church. We need to understand that the country we live in, what's going on. We need to understand. 2020, 8% of people in the United States claimed no religious affiliation, 8%. In 2020, that number has jumped to 21%. 21% have no religious affiliation. Currently, and here's what's scary, currently, 31% of millennial adults, those are people born between 1981 and 1996, 31% have no religious affiliation. That number's gone up 9% in the last 10 years. You would think as that generation gets older, more of them would be associated with church, but the numbers are showing something opposite. Fewer of them are acknowledging or or are part of a religious group or a church or a mosque or, 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 or a synagogue. The generation Z, that numbers are even worse the generation after. Understand, church, our country is getting less and less faithful to God. There was a time when most of those numbers would indicate people going to church, but now you mix in higher numbers of mosques and synagogues, and now the church is even being shrunk even more. Those numbers are even worse than what it says. Lifeway released this. A Christian, a Southern Baptist, one of our Southern Baptist organizations, Lifeway, put this report out. said, in Protestant churches, a little over two-thirds of all teenagers leave the church after high school. Over two-thirds will leave the church after high school. Only a small percentage will come back. Studies are showing that number is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But here's what's fascinating. When asked why do they do that, what's the main reason for not coming back to church? It's not because their feelings were hurt. It's not because some college professor concluded their mind. It was not because of hypocrites in the church or they didn't agree with the, 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 the preacher's politics. Here's the number one thing they said. They said the number one thing is this, that it has, that it is, I'm sorry, that they have, uh, let me me read this correctly. Isn't it great? Isn't it great when you practice something for effect? This doesn't work. It is that nothing, here's what, it is nothing, it is that nothing about their church experience or faith Caused them to seek out a connection to a local church as they entered this new phase in their life. They got to a certain age and they saw no reason to join one. The number one answer, not because somebody offended, they simply saw no reason to do it. That is the most scariest thing I have read in these surveys. What in the world are we doing when our young people grow up? And there are exceptions. There's exceptions. You, you can do everything you're supposed to do, and, and, and your child may or may not be faithful to the Lord. I, I learned that all the time. I, I'll never tell you what my kids won't do. I, I don't know. <laughs> i tell you what I hope they won't do. But here's the thing. Why are we not living in such a way that when given the opportunity, they have to connect the church? Why do they not see that as their lifeblood? Why do they not see that as their purpose in life? It is a scary thing to think about the condition we are in, church. Part of the vision that our Southern Baptist Convention has for 2025, one of the major emphasis is to reverse this decline in baptism among those under the age of 18, to reach them and to disciple them, put more of an emphasis on doing that. Every study will always point to the fact that if people come to Christ, they're usually going to do it before they're 18. Therefore, we must do everything we can. That's why vacation Bible school is so important. That's why all that we do is so important. Uh, A few years ago, I had to read a book by John Dickerson. And if you're looking for a good book to read, that will open your eyes to a lot of things. His book is called The Great Evangelical Recession. Six Factors That Will Crash the American Church. Six things that are going to crash our church that nobody wants to talk about. In that, he reveals that our biggest problem is this. Our biggest problem in losing our youth in our church is not discipling our adults. But not properly discipling, uh, we're not discipling the parents, the children are, are not, because they do not see the need nor the joy that comes with a close walk and service to Jesus Christ. They are not seeing mom and daddy getting in the word of God and getting excited about the word. They don't see mom and daddy getting up early on Sunday morning getting excited about going to the house of God. They don't see mom and daddy getting excited about serving the risen king. No matter if it's in this sanctuary or it's in the nursery or wherever it's at. That's the number one thing that people are saying. Oh, why, wow. Folks, I understand there are exceptions to the rule. But I'm here to tell you, that we need to have such a walk with Jesus Christ. That listen, if you were to ask our kids what excites my parents, hey, what excites my grandparents? It is Jesus Christ. What excite? Where do they want to go? They want to go to church. They want to worship the one who died on the cross for their sins. They want to serve the one who took their hell for them. There ought to be no doubt whatsoever. And you can't fake that joy. Either you've got it, or you. Don't. We've got to be very serious and watchful in a prayer. Church, we are in a very dangerous time in our country. And you may say, Well, it's, it's not going to affect me, Brother Robert. It's going to affect your children and grandchildren and great grandchildren greatly. Greatly. We need to be fervent also in love for one another. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, But above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Here he challenged them to love with an agape love, a Christian love, to be fervent, to be persistent, constantly, and passionate about it. We are to love with that. You know, uh, uh, Peter says here, for it will cover a multitude of sins. You've heard me say before, I, I had a great high school basketball coach, and one of his famous sayings was, running covers a multitude of sins too. <laughs> you wanted to act up, he, he would run you till he got that out of you. But here, Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins. That word cover, it means to conceal, to prevent something from getting out or being seen or discovered. Here it says it'll cover a multitude of sin, a large number of sins. Now, church, please do not misunderstand or take out of context what Peter is trying to communicate here. He is not saying that we were to call sin, uh, uh, not call sin, sin, because sin is sin, and we were to call it sin. And if you love someone with a Christian love, you in that Christian love will go to your brother and sister in Christ. And sometimes you may need to go with somebody, but you will go lovingly to that person, and you will explain to them uh, your concern. You'll do it with meekness. You'll do it with uh, understanding. If you were in that position, how would you want someone to approach you? But Christian love does not look the other way. No, the context here, he's talking about loving with a Christian love, like we see in 1 Corinthians 13, that doesn't keep score. It doesn't keep score. It doesn't let things just linger. It just and moves on. Think about the Gospel. Isn't it great that God does not bring up your sin once you've been forgiven? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that He has called us to be like Him? Did He not tell us in the, in the Word of God when Jesus told us how to pray? He says you ought to forgive if you want to be forgiven. Does he not tell us over and over again in Scripture, we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us? If sin ever comes to my mind, it's usually because Satan is reminding me. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ already paid for my sin debt. And he's put it out there in that old water, put a sign like the old preacher said, no fishing. He put the deepest part, no fishing. The Bible says that when I come to him for a confession of sin, he removes all unrighteousness. Again, that doesn't mean that there might not be some earthly ramifications for my sin. But understand, I have been forgiven. And he doesn't treat me as if someone who hadn't been forgiven. Not that God can forget anything. He just chooses not to bring it back up. Folks, if we forgive somebody, it doesn't mean we're going to forget what they did to us. We just choose not to bring it up. We choose not to dwell on it. We choose not to be consumed. And when we do, we just go to those verses and we think about what God's forgiven us of. And I'm here to tell you, once we start looking in the mirror and what God has forgiven us for, oh, my goodness. Years ago, I read a book from Charles Stanley on uh, the doctrine of eternal security. Oh, my goodness. And that old boy just broke it down, real simple like. You think about what he has forgiven you of. Now, can you go and not forgive that person? Because, oh, by the way, you put Jesus on that cross. You caused something to happen to him that his father had to turn away from. He became what he hated for you. And you can't forgive someone? Oh, no. See, when you're letting all those grudges hold on, there's people probably right here sitting out here today. There's probably people watching. Somebody said something to you one time. Somebody did something that that hurt your feelings and made you mad. And what they did was probably bad. Hey, it probably was join the club. They probably did say something really bad about you. They did something really bad. Forgive them, and you serve your king. Love them in Christian love, and you serve your king. If you think that all of you have to do is be offended to quit serving, I'm here to tell you Satan's going to have a field day with you. He'll have a field day with you. I don't want to stand before my God one day and tell him, well, so-and-so said something bad about me, or they were they said something on Facebook about me, and they, they didn't give me credit. They didn't let me be a part of something, so I just quit. Goodness, standing next to people who have been tortured for the faith—how humiliating that must be! How humiliating that will be, folks. We need to love with a fervency, folks. There's two. The time is now. Verse nine. He goes on to say, "Be hospitable without complaining. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling." That word, Hospital means to treat guests and strangers cordially or, or generously. Peter's writing to an audience that's about to start losing things. If they haven't already, they might start losing their jobs, start losing their home, losing their family. They're going to need somewhere to stay. And those homes back then weren't like they are now. We've got a lot of room in our homes now. I would venture to say most of you in this in this place, you may have a kitchen. You've got a room for a, a living room. You've got a bathroom, one or two bathrooms. You've got a couple of bedrooms. We've got multiple. You know, a lot of them most had one room. Let me tell you something, it's going to be inconvenient if you've got five in that one-room house and all of a sudden your neighbor down the road has lost his job because of his faith in Christ and he needs somewhere to live and now he's living there. And now where you had one little trail, you could get up and walk in your house at night. Now there's just bodies everywhere laying. You can't watch the TV like you want to watch it because they got the remote control. Your, your Your internet's getting weighed down because everybody's on their phones now. I mean, there's all kinds of issues. Uh, the kid, the refrigerator's getting low because everybody's going in there. There's much more to it than just that being hospitable. We need to be there. I believe the main purpose, main idea for us today is that we need to be willing to be inconvenienced and not grumble and complain about it. I've got news for you. Serving the Lord Jesus Christ will inconvenience you. There will always be something you can complain about. There will always be something you can grumble.